for... That's right. Now, should I start from the beginning? Yeah. <laughs> 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 no, like Darren. Yeah. Okay. It's okay, Amy. It's just the jokes. Okay. <laughs> it was the garbage night. So, where was I? The Odyssey. Now, the Odyssey is, is a attempt that was very, very popular in, in Christian theology, but also was in Muslim theology and Jewish theology, to justify God. Using Garden of Eden, Heaven, Hell, Messianic, different tendencies to justify God, to say that God does not create evil. That the system does work. That the biblical promise is fulfilled. And the history of this attempt of theodicy is very rich with many heroes and many thinkers. But before we go to Job, I want to offer an opening thought. The classic Jewish tradition doesn't deal with theodicy. And this is a thought that I heard first from a great teacher of mine, Avi Ravitsky that our, our great, the founder of our nation, Abraham, when he was the first time had to realize that maybe the system doesn't work. That when God is going to destroy Sodom, Abraham realizes that there are some righteous people in Sodom. He knows at least one. Who? Lot. So he bargains for 50, just in case. And he says to God, Khalila Lechan Nasot Kadavarze. Far from you. You shouldn't do this, God. Every time I read this line, I feel like this can't be in the Bible. This is probably my Bible. A typo. And then Abraham goes to Hashofet Kola Aretz Loyasanishpats. God that judges the entire world does not judge justly. Now this is interesting because an alternative religious impulse that was articulated in the dialogue of Plato, Euthyphro. Now technically an alternative impulse would say that the gods in Euthyphro or, or, or in Plato, God can't by definition get it wrong. And that's because anything that, the reason why anything that God does is right is because God determines what's right. You can't judge God, you're only judged by God. But Abraham does never heard of Kierkegaard for some reason. <laughs> and I guess he never, he never read Euthyphro. Plato. Abraham does not feel like he's judged by God. He doesn't feel like God determines what's good and what's ethical. On the contrary, he feels like he can judge God and by doing that, he is locating our ethical impulse above God. We are judging God. And therefore, Abraham is founding at this moment. He wasn't consistent his entire life, by the way. But at this moment, he is founding a new tradition. Not a tradition where your, where your hero is the one who justifies God. 
But Yeshua is the one that criticizes God. And the inheritor of this tradition will be Moshe Rabbeinu. That when Korach will rebel against Moshe with, two, with a coalition of 250 people, and Moshe understands that God is going to burn those 250 people, Moshe cries out to God the Abrahamic cry. He says to God, Ha'ish echad yecheta, will one man sin that kol the entire coalition of 250 people are going to suffer for the sin of one? Moshe didn't think his job now is to justify God. To say that if that's what God says, it's probably right, even we have to surrender even if we don't understand. He doesn't go into that theology. He doesn't say in the afterlife, these people have it right. Instead of justifying God, he criticizes him. And this tradition will be going on in Psalms and in Habakkuk and the book of Job. An alternative tradition. Not a t- tradition as opposed to great, the- great monotheistic traditions. Where the, where the religious hero is the one who justifies God. The alternative tradition is where the hero is the one who criticizes him. And I want to ask, what's the significance of this tradition? What is the meaning of this tradition? I want to offer one thought. And with that thought, to go and start reading this text of Job. The tradition that justifies God shares a very powerful impulse. That's the impulse that since God is always right, then history is always where it needs to be. Everything that has to, that happens ought to happen. History is always, there isn't a gap between the way history is and the way history ought to be. God is always right. And everything that happens is always divine. It's always the way it needs to be. Now this is shared by many. Schelling said once that the history of the world is the courtroom of the world. In the end, who prevails in history is also the one who needs to prevail in history. Now what kind of approach does this create? This creates an approach where you surrender in front of history. Whatever needs to happen will happen. Whatever happens ought to happen. But when you believe that God doesn't always get it right, when you criticize God, that's also saying that we don't accept reality. That's saying that we don't accept the world, we try to repair the world. The theology of tikkun olam is derived from a theology of the criticism of God. It means that humanity is not satisfied from what happens. And that we do believe that could, it's possible that there's a gap between the world as it is and the world as it ought to be. And this, the psychology of tikkun olam, of not being satisfied from the world, has everything to do with the theology of criticizing God and not just being involved constantly in justifying Him. But something happened, something happened that sometime in the Middle Ages, this tradition died. The tradition of criticizing God, the tradition, and we started entering a scholastic period where we're constantly justifying Him. 
By the Zionists understood this. Zionists understood that the passivity of the Jews in diaspora that will not take control over history. It comes because they believe that history is what God wants. Therefore, we just surrender in front of history. Therefore, the Zionists believed that the only way to rebel against history, to gain control over history, to change history, comes to people that, can't, that don't accept history. And the only people that don't, don't accept history are people that are, that are secular, that don't accept God. But the Zionists didn't know that there's a third alternative. That the Bible doesn't, that by accepting God, you struggle with Him. And I think one of the greatest books ever to struggle with God, that deals with this question, is the book of Job. And I understand from the rabbi that many of you have been studying this book. I'd like to offer a reading to this great book. Now, with, with large audiences, I have a tendency not to read. But in plot strokes, I try to go over what the text is saying. But let's start from the first verse. I'll read this in Hebrew, in the source, and feel free to follow me, to follow me either with the translation or to give it a try and follow, me, follow with me in Hebrew. Eretz I think we know where it is, but the geography doesn't interest me as much as the um, as the origin, the ethnic origin of Job. Job was not a Jew. Job was from the land. He was from the. He's the wizard of Oz. Into the land of Uts. He was not a Jew. Now I have a question. It says here that he was perfect. <laughs> that he was meaning he never committed any sin. He never did anything wrong. Now I have a question. Which biblical figure had never sinned. Moses, David, Shlomo. Angels. Which biblical human never sinned? Noah. No, I have a problem there with wine. The only biblical figure that never sinned is he of himself. He's the first one. You can't expect much from Jews. <laughs> if you read the numbers here, they all round up to perfect numbers. And this caught the suspicion of the Talmud. Everything is too perfect here. The person is too perfect. The numbers are too perfect. It's so not biblical. And the Talmud, after a lot of discussion, one of the opinions, thought history became the dominant opinion, is that Iov lo haya velo nivra. 
<laughs> this never happened. This is a fairy tale. Lo haya velo nivra mashal haya. But I want to say something about mashal haya. It's not a historical event, but it's a great metaphor. Many people think that when you say that it didn't, that it's not historical, that means it's not a true story. I think the Talmud approach, and definitely Maimonides' approach, is that if it's not historical, it is a true story. <laughs> if it didn't happen, then it's real. I want to say why. Now, this is something that Abarbanel writes about Gan Eden. And this is something I think that, that, that the Rambam has been in a very deep sense. If the reason why they're telling us the story is because it happens, meaning if this is history, it's not interesting. Now, I'm sure there's historians in the crowd. I'm sorry. Are there? Okay. If it happened, it's not interesting. Because if it happened, it's not something that happened in the past. But if it's a metaphor, that's something that happens all the time. If it's history, it's about something that happened to him. If it's a metaphor, then it's about us. By de-historicizing the text, we're upgrading the reality of it. It becomes a story about us. And that's the sad truth about Yov. We read Yov, we're not reading about something that used to happen. We're reading about something that all the time happens. It's a story about us. Besides the idea of perfection. I'm moving to, to, to uh, verse 6. I think in English he's translated adversary. But I think Satan is more sounds more mythical. Some linguists say that Satan comes from Satan. If you listen to what God says to him, Vayomer Adonai ela Satan, ela Shatan, me'ayin tavo, vayana Satan, et Adonai Vayomer, mishut ba'aretz u'mitalech ba. Maybe Satan comes from the fact that he's mishotet. He's the wanderer. That's why he's a Shatan. He's all over the place. But he's a part of B'nei Elohim. He's one of the sons of God. He's a part of the council that God debates his big questions with. Have you noticed my servant Job? Have you noticed Job? This perfect human being that's never sinned? What is God doing to Satan? What? Goading him. Goading means goading the vidgarot. He's definitely goading him. <laughs> That's a good word. Thank you. But before he's goading him, what is he first? What is he doing? He's bragging. Now, why is he bragging about Job? Why does he have so much pride in Job? Well, for biblical readers, it's obvious. He finally got it right. 
There's finally a perfect creation. And he shows Satan, look, I did it. And then Satan is a cynic. He doesn't believe that Job is actually good. What does Satan say to him? Satan has the following argument. Job isn't really good. His good is not an expression. His good actions are not an expression of his good nature. He doesn't have a good personality. He has a great environment. And his good behavior is a reflection of his environment that he somehow internal like not of his character Iyob is excuse me this is a fair right Sadiq Kitovlo he's good because he has it good and God says no no he really is good he's authentically good the book of Job opens with a machloket between God and Satan the disagreement between God and Satan is a disagreement that still exist in this world. It's a disagreement. Is, are, are human beings, can human beings naturally be good? Or when we're good, it's only a reflection of our environment. Satan is an environmentalist. Satan believes he's a cynic. He doesn't believe that you can actually be good. And if you're good, it's because you went to Harvard. If you're good, it's because of your environment. It's because, it's because you always had good. Satan is a cynic. God believes in the humanity. God believes that Job can actually be good. And this is, I think, what's very deep in the opening of the book of Job. This book, this book, there will raise a question that will make many people, many human beings, not believe in God, opens with a God that believes in human beings. God believes in man. Maybe as a result of Job, man won't believe in God. But the opening disagreement of this book is about the belief of God in humanity. He believes that we can actually be good. And we can overcome our environment. Satan is a cynic. He doesn't believe in the goodness of humanity. Now how do you settle the disagreement between God and Satan? How can you settle that disagreement? Let's do a great experiment. A great experiment. Let's rob Eov from all his environment, from all the good things he has, and then we'll see if he is still good. Because see, if he is still good, that means that God was right. If he is not good anymore, that means that the cynic was right. That Satan was right. So they decide on this great experiment, and they make a bet, and they shake hands, metaphysically. I never knew what the bet was on. Like, what do you get if you win this bet? Chaval that the Mefarshim didn't explore this point. It was like a bottle of Coke. But it's like, I think what they're betting, but in, in Israel we say, what are you betting on? So you say, Al-Tzedek. We're betting on pride. I think this is what the betting are. So that metaphysical handshake and the experiment takes place and the first thing that happens is that Yov, the Job, has everything he owns. 
destroyed. He was a rich man and now he has absolutely nothing. But Eov decides he's still righteous. He still doesn't curse God. He's still surviving the experiment. Then, then all his children, all his boys and girls are taken away from him. And when he receives this devastating news, he is still righteous. He still doesn't curse God. He still survives the experiment. After he has everything he owns taken from him and his children die. Job is, this is worse than the Yakidah. This, this Nisui. Which is a literal Nisui, an experiment. A test, not of Eov, but of humanity. His body is attacked. He has a terrible disease. And he's still a righteous. By the way, the only thing, everything was taken care of him, was taken from him, besides his wife. And as some people say that that's also a part of the experiment. <laughs> Not me. I, I don't think that. <laughs> it's, a, it's other interpreters. And his wife's role, and, and she tries to tell him, you know, you should, why don't you just curse God? And at this point of the story, in the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, you realize that God was right, God won the bet, and the beginning of Job establishes the goodness of human nature. The anthropological disagreements ends with God's victory, which is actually human victory. Human, we, we, we end chapter 1 and chapter 2 believing in the goodness of good, but while we, we establish the goodness of man, of humanity, we start questioning the goodness of God. What kind of a God does this to, to Job? We have to prove something to Satan. This is, I think, the drama here. This is the mo moment where the book of Job mo moves from anthropological question to theological question. From asking, is man good, to start asking, is God good? And Job, his good friends come to visit him when he's mourning. And what do Job's friends say to Job? There's different things they say to him. But the classic argument of his friends, at least the most of his friends are, that you must have sinned, Job. What? Why do they say you must have sinned? You must have sinned. Because they believe in the biblical equation. Bad things happen to bad people. Therefore, like good Talmudic scholars, if bad things happen to you, you must have been bad. Can you imagine? Poor Job. Not only that he had everything taken away from him, now his social image is being destroyed. Now he's a sinner. Now the 
question is, the last question, the last thing up for debate is, I'm translating directly from Hebrew, but a social image, is that what I'm looking for? Does that make sense? Reputation. What? Reputation. His reputation, okay. Um, okay, reputation. But what, the only thing that's up for debate is his dimuy atzmi. Is his self-image? His what? Self-esteem. Because if he'll start believing his friends, he'll start believing, well, I must have done something terrible. I'm probably a sinner. He'll stop believing in himself. That's everything taken from him. That's one thing that's not. For some reason, Job is not willing. Job is not willing to sacrifice his self-esteem or to justify God. He's not willing to do that. And this is where the dialogue becomes interesting. Job can't understand why it happened. He's not willing to be a heretic, he's not willing to curse God, but he's not willing to sacrifice his self-esteem. Actually, if you think about it, the disagreement between Job and his friends, if the bad things that happen to him mean that he's been bad, is actually a representation of disagreement between God and Satan. Satan didn't believe that Job is good. Job's friends don't believe that he's authentically good. And who represents God? God believed in Job. Also Job believes in Job. So they're wrestling with this question for, 30, for 36 chapters in a language that seems like it's Hebrew. And they reach chapter 38. Suddenly, God appears and gives his answer. God appears from the storm. For 36 chapters, we're waiting for God's answer. When God finally appears, what does He do? He asks a question. God answers with a question. I guess God's a Jew. God answers with a question. But actually it's not a real question. And it's not, really, and not a real answer. What he actually does here, God, doesn't answer with a question. He undermines the, the legitimacy of Job's question. Who that's in the dark, intellectual darkness, can have an opinion. It's not advice in the book of Hebrew. It's, it's, um, it's, an, idea, it's an opinion. Yov Meretz Utz has an etza. God says, who are you to have an etza, an opinion, in the darkness? Stand up. Be a man. That's a 
guess this, the, that slang of be a man is not only contemporary Israeli Hebrew, if you give it, it's also biblical Hebrew. I will ask you a question and I ask you to answer me. I command you to answer me. I'm in verse 4. Where were you? When I laid the earth foundations. Speak if you have understanding. And Abby goes on to describe his creation. What God is telling Job, were you around when I created the entire cosmos? That you can question cosmic justice? Do you have the big picture? That you can judge my actions? God's not answering him. God's destroying his question, his legitimacy to ask a question. Now what's God's, what's God's move here in this book? What's his move here? The answer that God is giving Job is the classic answer, the great of all times. It's the big picture answer. It was given by theologians all over history and it shares the following idea that there's a cognitive gap between man and God. And men and women don't have enough of, you know, of, of depth and there's a cognitive difference between them and God and therefore they can't understand that the world really is justice, but we just can't see it. And not modest enough to admit it. Job is not modest enough to admit it. The big picture answer means that in the big picture of the world, there is justice. Now the big picture theory, in a very deep sense, is shared by some postmodernists on the one hand, and fundamentalists on the other hand. The big picture theory, or the big, this, there is the idea that I can only create an objective ethical judgment only if we have the entire perspective. But the problem is, I never have an entire perspective. I only have a partial perspective, a slice of reality. Therefore, I can never create an ethical, objective judgment. Let's say, you find yourself in a room. And in the room there's a, there's a, a table and a naked person on the table. And there's people all over that person and they're cutting them. So you probably create an ethical judgment, believing it's objective. Saying those people are criminals. This person is a victim. This is a crime. But when you leave that room and you get a bigger picture, you realize you were in an operations room. And your ethical judgment just flipped. That person is not a victim, he's a patient. Those people aren't criminals. They're doctors. That wasn't a crime, it was a mitzvah. You're a doctor? <laughs> you're sharing something. But what if, what if, you have a bigger picture. You realize when you leave the hospital, you're just a hospital that commits experiments in human beings. Suddenly your ethical doesn't just flip again. Oh, he is a victim, not a patient. Those people are criminals. 
That wasn't a mitzvah, it was a crime. But what if 200 years later you realize that, and I don't know if I stand behind this judgment, okay? But just for the sake of argument, that those experiments saved humanity. Maybe it flips again. So, here's the problem. Here's the problem. In order to create an objective ethical judgment, you have to have the entire picture. But we never have the entire picture. We always have pieces of reality. We always see either a small narrative, a small piece of the story, but we're not modest enough to understand that we see a small piece. We think we're seeing, we're seeing, we're looking at a part, but we think we're seeing the whole. The whole perspective. Now this could lead either to relativism, to a certain form of postmodernism, saying, well, there's no objectivity in the world. Everyone has its own narrative. We have to be modest and understand that no one has the big picture. No one has what Thomas Nagel calls a view from nowhere. And that could lead to relativism into the collapse of the sense of ethical objectivity. That's what we spoke about today. In your kitchen. But it could also lead to fundamentalism. Because when you realize that you can't know anything objectively, the only being in the cosmos that actually has the big picture is God. Therefore, I have to literally do anything that's, that rabbi says, say, that he asks me to do. That it says in the book that he asks me to do. It could go both ways, but, and maybe this is what God is telling Job. Where were you when I created the cosmos? You don't have the big picture. You don't have the entire perspective. Haged im yadata binad. You have any knowledge at all? You're not modest enough. You can't surrender. You can't accept your limitations. It's a convincing answer. That's the classic answer. That's the answer giving, being given for, for, for hundreds of years. And God says, God here also actually has two versions of this answer, but we'll, we'll stop with this, with this powerful, powerful answer. And here's my question. How does Job react to God's answer? Job's reaction is in chapter 40. God answers finally. Job answers God back. Hen kaloti is verse four. I am of small worth. What can I answer you? Job finally gets it. He gets, but he doesn't get it. Job finally accepts his real size in front of the cosmos. He finally surrenders. He finally understands that he doesn't understand. 
I put my hand in front of my mouth. I'm not asking anymore. I accept. And what is Job telling God? I accept that there must be a big answer. I am small. There is a mystery out there. There is a reason for my misery, but it's gigantic, it's cosmic, I can't see it, it's mysterious. In other words, Job accepts God's answer. Now, now here's my question. Job accepts God's answer. Can the reader of Job accept God's answer? Can we accept God's answer? The readers of Job knows why Job is suffering. Because we were there in chapter 1. And they know why Job is suffering. And the answer is not so mysterious and cosmic. The answer is comic. The answer is that Satan the proof to Satan that he was right. That God had a, excuse my language, an ego problem. It's not me, it's Rabbi Yochanan in the Talmud. Rabbi Yochanan in the Gemara says, If it wasn't said in the Bible, I couldn't have said it. Rabbi Yochanan. That God is behaving that God was tempted to this deal. So the reader of Job knows why Job is suffering. Just because God had to brag to Satan? Because he wanted to win a bet? Because he wanted to be right? There isn't a cognitive gap between man and God. There's a cognitive gap between Job and its reader. We can't accept God's answer. And the book of Job is constructed in a way where we can't. Accept God's answer. I ask sometimes, I ask some scholarly friends of mine, what do you think about this? That we read chapter 38 in light of chapter 1. It doesn't work. So we're going to find an answer. Well, maybe the writer expect, expect, accepted, expected that between chapter 1 and 38 are such long and impossible chapters that tell you, get to chapter 38, you'll forget chapter 1. <laughs> I guess that's how it worked for years. But the writer may didn't think about that. Maybe someone will make us, you know, a circuit from all this tough Hebrew. <laughs> I think what the book of Job is doing, the book of Job is not only asking the question also mocking the answer. The book of Job asks the question but creates a parody. Parody of parodia? Parody of the answer. The book of Job says, well, sometimes the big picture theory doesn't make any sense. Sometimes we have to accept the fact that there isn't a great design out there. Maybe sometimes bad things happen and it's arbitrary and it's chaotic. It's about ego and all, and it's not really. The world isn't always, always just. Is that right, grammar? 
I'm practicing my English, thank you. <laughs> Obviously, a question needs to be asked and it's always asked. This is an important book, it's a masterpiece. It asks the most important question, creates a parody of the most important answer, the classic answer. But when you finish this book, you ask yourself, what is this book doing in the Bible? Why is this in the, in the Bible? And the fact that it's in the Bible promotes a certain reading of it. Well, it can't say what it's actually saying. It can't. It's in the Bible. Maybe we have to think, of the, but maybe we have to think differently. Maybe instead of saying, well, Job can't say, it's impossible that it says what it's saying because it's in the Bible. Maybe since it's in the Bible, maybe the Bible isn't what we thought the Bible was. Instead of asking, what does the fact that Job is in the Bible says about Job, let's ask, what does it say about, about the Bible? And when actually, what Job does to the Bible is also what Ecclesiastes does to the Bible. The Bible offers a great theory. A theory that there is a symmetry in the world between what we do and what happens to us. A symmetry between our biography and our destiny. Good things happen to good people and this theory is promoted throughout the entire Bible. But then it takes the book of Job and it canonizes that too. And the statement of this canonization is that the theory is a part of the Bible, but also the, the criticism of the theory, also that is biblical. Also the thesis, and also the antithesis. May I say it right? I have a problem with that word in English, it doesn't make sense. It's supposed to be antithesis. Also the antithesis is Holy Scripture. And the Bible canonizing also its theory and also its criticism creates an, a, a different world. It creates a world where in the 19th century some intellectuals thought that well since the Bible doesn't work the Bible is probably wrong they start criticizing the Bible. Like Voltaire and other thinkers and it's a serious move. But after you read like the book of Job you realize that you don't have to alienate yourself from the Bible to criticize it. You can also connect yourself to the Bible to criticize it. We don't only criticize the Bible, this is a criticism of the Bible itself. The Bible realizing that the criticism of its own theory itself is holy, itself is biblical, <coughs> teaches us a great lesson in pluralism. But it's a very certain type of pluralism. Biblical pluralism is, is, I think, a little bit different than what we call pluralism today. Because when the book of Deuteronomy tries to argue, tries to state that there's a symmetry in the world and the good will happen to the good and bad to the bad, it doesn't open it to discussion. Deuteronomy is not a pluralistic book. Also, Job was not a pluralistic book. 
So it doesn't work and it's not opening to the discussion. It's not saying you think this way, you can think that way. Job is not pluralistic. Deuteronomy is not pluralistic. The books in the Bible aren't pluralistic. The Bible is a pluralism of books. Not pluralistic books. It's a pluralism of books that themselves aren't pluralistic. Every book has a passion. Every book has an opinion. It's a pluralism of books. Here's probably the problem of many plural, of, of pluralism today. That when every person is a pluralist, you don't have pluralism. Because when I say, you know, that's right and that's right too, and we argue and you say, you know, that's right too, so we don't really have an argument anymore. I have to think that I'm right and you think that you're right, and pluralism is created when we meet. The book of Kohelet of Ecclesiastes introduces a new concept of time, of cyclical time. The entire Bible is about linear time. The entire Bible is the fact that everything that happens will never happen again. That's why you have to record it and capture it and write history because it's irreversible. And then Ecclesiastes comes and says, no, everything happens again. Ecclesiastes is a criticism of the classic biblical narrative, but it is also part of the Bible. Job is a criticism of the Bible, but it's also a part of the Bible. The Bible teaches us the power of discourse. And I'd like to end with the reading of an openness to questions. The reading of Rabbi Nachman Ibristev. Rabbi Nachman has a comment on the famous line from Traktat Avot, from Pirkei Avot, one of the rabbis says, Kol chayai gadalti ben chachami. You know that line? My entire life, I've grown among scholars, or between scholars. And what does, now what does that mean? My entire life, I've grown between scholars. A story of mine once interpreted the following way, that in today's world we believe that there is an age where we grow. And then after college about, we stop growing. This scholar says, Kol chayai gadalti You never stop growing. You never stop learning. Kol chayai gadalti My entire life I've grown in between scholars. But Rabbi Nachman takes it somewhere else. Rabbi Nachman asks, Where did you grow? Where is the space of growth? Kol chayai gadalti in the space between scholars. That's where you grow. And what exists between scholars? When you open the Talmud, what always exists between scholars? Mayesh bin Chachamim. There's always a machloket. There's always a disagreement. Sham Kadarni. That's where I grew. You don't grow from scholars. You grow from the space between scholars, from the power of disagreement. The Bible creates a discussion and the space between Job and between Deuteronomy, between Genesis and between Ecclesiastes, that space, the space that the disagreement creates, that's a space of growth, of our growth.
תודה רבה.
voice the opinion of Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, they actually voice the opinion of Beit Shammai before the opinion of Beit Hillel. That's why Al-Hakki Beit Hillel, not because they're more right, but because they're better listeners. If you're willing to listen, we'll hear you. And I think, but being a Hillelist, being a true listener, has a price. I think from this price, we can understand what it means to listen. Some scholars counted, I forgot the number, but at least eight times in the Talmud. Beit Hillel listened to Beit Shammai, and Beit Shammai convinced them. And they changed their mind. A true listener means that you're willing to risk your opinions. A true listener means that you're willing to change your mind. And if you're not willing to change your mind, you're not really listening. If you're willing to sacrifice, to risk your opinions, then you're a listener. I think many times we don't have dialogues. We have simultaneous monologues. I'm talking, you're talking, but we're not listening. Listening means there's a real chance they'll be convinced. And psychologically that means, actually, let's, it means that I think I'm right, but I'm still skeptic. I'm not absolutely certain. And I'm still open to be convinced. And if you think you're right, and you're still open to be convinced, that's when you start listening to each other. And according to the halakha, when you are a listener, then you're also worth listening to. Um, I'm going to just have one more question, which I'm going to ask, and then we'll, uh, you'll be able to close and have people uh, speak to you. Uh, back to the book of Job for just a second. Uh, is there any message of hope or consolation to the person who's in pain? A bad thing has happened to a good person. Um, you've debunked the answer that uh, God is God and you're not just uh, trust there's some cosmic answer. If that's not the consolation, not the Muhammad, is there any consolation in the book of Job for a person in pain? Yes, I think the book of Job is consolation. <laughs> the book of Job is not a cynical book. It asks the question, it mocks the answer, but it's still, it's still in the Bible. And when it's in the Bible, you, you guys yourself, why did they put it in the Bible? Okay, biblical pluralism, that's very nice. But still, what about our God? What about our faith? What about, how do we live in a world where the Bible tells us, well, maybe it means nothing? But here's the problem. If you take the book of Job out of the Bible, we still didn't take the God of Job out of history. The God of Job is still a part of our life. The God of Auschwitz is still a part of our life. The chaos and unjustified misery is still a part of our life. And thanks to Job, we know that also we, when we feel like something not justified happened to us, also we have a part in the Bible. We're represented in the Bible. The Bible noticed us. Without the book of Job, I think the Bible can't, can't offer any conciliation to us. Because the Bible doesn't represent us. It represents the perfect history. It doesn't represent our history. Thanks to Job, we actually have a part in the Bible. The Bible notices our life, our history, our real history. Thank you. by uh, all of us rising and turning in our sitting room to page 71 and saying Kaddish Rabbanan together. Page 71, Kaddish Rabbanan. Yitkadal v'yitkadash meravah b'yalma divra kirutay b'yamlif makutay 
בחיי חול וביום החול ובחיי דחור בית ישראל בעגלה ובזמן קריב אמרו אמן יהי שמי רבם וברך לעולם ולעומי עומיה יתבורך וישתבח ויתבואר ויתרומם ויתנשא וירדור ויעלה ויהלוך שמי דקושה בריחו לאלה מנחו ברכתה ושירתה שוש ברכתה ונחמתה דאמירם ואומה ואמרו אמן על ישראל ועל רבנן ועל תלמידיהם ועל כל תלמידי תלמידיהם ועל כל מון ויסכין ויורייתא די ויעטרה הדין ודי בכל אתר ואתר יהא להון ולכון שלמה רבה חינא וחצרא ורחמין וחיין אריכין ומזונה רביכה ופורקנה מקדמה וחונדי משמעיה ואמרו אמן יהא שלמה רבה מן שמיה וחיים טובים עלינו ויעקו ישראל ואמרו אמן עושה שלום במרומיו וברחמיו יעשה שלום עלינו ויעקו ישראל ואמרו אמן מיכה, we all want to just thank you so much for your beautiful Torah